All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. And our text this morning is from verses 21 through 23. But before I read those scriptures, I want to call your attention to two statements that were made by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. And in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, he said, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Well, Paul was dealing with a Corinthian church that was prideful of their spiritual gifts. They were bragging that they excelled in wisdom. They were proud of their intellect. And indeed, they had often heard the wisdom of men as they listened to the great Greek philosophers of their day. But Paul countered that at the end of chapter 1 by saying that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen things that are despised to accomplish his purposes. And then he says in the beginning of the second chapter, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Paul's mind, this was the most important point of all, the most important knowledge that can be gained, the most important thing to be believed is the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our faith, our salvation, our eternal life is built on what Jesus did at the cross. The cross was an absolute necessity, and without that, mankind is hopelessly lost and we're forever separated from the holy God. So Paul threw off man's reasoning about the cross. He threw off the offense of the cross. Uh, Those things mattered very little to him. And he said that he must preach Christ crucified, and he must preach Christ's death. He must preach Christ's resurrection And all of man's reasoning, he left to be crushed beneath the weight of God's eternal wisdom. Well, we come to this place in the Gospel of Matthew in which the entire purpose of Matthew's story begins to crystallize into its central focus. Here, in these verses, man's wisdom and God's wisdom stare each other in the face. Man's wisdom says no to the cross, but God's wisdom says no. It must be done. Now, if you'll look in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, and stand with me as we read these few scriptures from God's word. Matthew 16, verse number 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be done unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those things that be of men. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you, Lord, that you'd just open up our eyes to understand this text before us today. Help us to see the centrality, the real importance of the cross of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, you may be seated. Our subject this morning is Peter's problem with the passion. 
In 2004, Mel Gibson helped to produce and write and directed the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And the passion, the word passion there, actually refers to the sufferings of Christ from the time of the Last Supper all the way through the crucifixion on the cross. And when I use this title, Peter's Problem with the Passion, I'm referring to the objection of Peter found in these scriptures in which he insisted that Jesus should not go to the cross. The idea of Jesus dying was an offense to him, And at this point in Peter's discipleship, he was like most of the world, and he was like the other disciples, in fact, in that they did not understand the real dire necessity of Jesus' death. Now, although the world today may applaud Jesus for his compassion for people, and they may talk about him as a a great example in his uh, stellar model of love for mankind. They might even at times mention his death on the cross, but they're really none too happy to dig into the actual reasons behind why Jesus had to be crucified. Now, I'd like for us to take some time this morning to consider these reasons that flow out of the wisdom of God And see how they contrast to Peter's thinking and also to our thinking when we try to comprehend the reason why that Jesus had to go to the cross. Now I want you to note in the beginning of verse number 21, it says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples. We find that same type of language in the fourth chapter in verse 17. This was after the temptation in the wilderness. And there the scripture says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now there are Bible commentators that have noted that these two places in scripture define a division of the gospel into two epochs. The first is Jesus preaching the kingdom of heaven to the people in general. And then later upon the mass rejection of him as the Messiah, he turns away from the people. And in the second epoch, he concentrates mainly on teaching his disciples. Now we notice that Satan was active in the beginning of both of those epochs. He was there first at the temptation of Christ. He's the one who tried to tempt Jesus to keep him from going to the cross, to accept the kingdom right then. And here we find him again when Jesus tells the disciples that he must go to the cross, that he begins to speak through one of Jesus' disciples as Peter protested that the cross should not be the outcome for Jesus. Now, up to this time... Jesus had given the disciples veiled references concerning his death. You remember that he told them about the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he said, even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. That was a veiled reference to his death. He told the Pharisees that if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. He said to Nicodemus, he gave him the example of Moses lifting up that serpent in the wilderness. And he said, unless the Son of Man is lifted up, he said he must be lifted up in order to draw all men to him. And those were veiled references to his death. But at this point, Jesus begins to speak very clearly and to show his disciples clearly that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things. He must be killed by his enemies. And then he said, I will be raised from the dead. Jesus said, I must go. And we wonder, why did he say that? Why must he go? Why isn't there 
some other way for Jesus to be our Savior other than the cruel death of the cross. And I'm sure Peter must have thought the same thing. He didn't want Jesus to die. Why must you go? He's asking Jesus. Forbid it, Lord, that you should die. You can be a king without the cross, and you can be our Savior without the cross. Now, I'd like to consider this and uh, this point in the message today, and this is really as far as we'll go. I want to talk to you about the divine purpose of God in planning the cross for Christ, the divine purpose of God. Do you know the first words that are recorded in Scripture that Jesus said? They're not found in the book of Matthew because Matthew records what Jesus said when he was 30 years old, and that's when he came to the baptism of John. So the first words that we find that Jesus speaks in the book of Matthew are words that he spoke when he was about 30 years old. But Jesus said something long before that, uh, and his first recorded words are not actually found in Matthew, but they're in the book of Luke, and they were when he was 12 years old. Now, I'm sure that when Jesus was a baby, that by the time he was about a year old, he probably started to speak some words, as babies do. Then when he was about two years old, he probably started to put a few words together and maybe make a sentence or two. By the time he was four years old, I would suppose that he spoke much better. But we don't have any record of those times, nothing about the baby talk of Jesus. But we do learn that at a very early age, Jesus already knew something of God's divine purpose for his life. And so we find in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, the first recorded words of Jesus. And he said unto them, how is it that ye sought me? And there he's talking to his parents who had left him behind in Jerusalem. How is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not, or didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Jesus said, I must be about my father's business, or I must do my father's business. And he wasn't talking about Joseph because Joseph was not his father. He was talking about his heavenly father. And we find that same thought 20 years later in this passage when Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. That the trip to Jerusalem has to be undertaken because this is the Father's business. This is what the Father has ordained for him to do. Now we'll look at that then, that this was the eternal plan of the Father. And to find the Father's business, we have to travel back before the birth of Jesus We have to go back further before the intratestamental period. We have to go back before Isaiah and before David, back before Joshua, back before Moses, before Abraham, before Noah, even before Adam. We have to go all the way back before the creation of the world, back before time into eternity past when man was only a concept in the mind of God. And it was already determined then, before the world was ever created, that the Son of God must die. Now, folks, that is just a, an astounding realization, that, that Jesus was not just the baby that was born in a manger, and he, was, he didn't come into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was not just the man who did the miracles by the Sea of Galilee, and he's not just the preacher who was a thorn in the side to the scribes and the Pharisees, but that Jesus, when he went to the cross, he was actually the eternal Son of God, that he goes back before time. He has no beginning and no ending. 
And so it was determined before time ever began that Jesus must come into a world that was at that time uncreated to die for men who did not yet exist. And in the council halls of eternity, God had a plan to create and to redeem a people for him. And Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem in order to fulfill that plan. He was following the divinely pre-ordered plan. Now this is really a a mind-boggling assertion to think that the cross was not a hastily devised plan B. That as a last resort, if all else fails, then the cross is the only way out. It's hard to imagine that this, this was not only plan A, but that this was the only plan that God ever thought about. That Christ must die was predetermined. In his prayer before the crucifixion, Jesus prayed to the Father and he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son may also glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. That was the plan of the Father. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so the cross was not a chance happening. If you believe that the death of Christ happened by chance, or that the salvation of any sinner is by chance, or that God gives chances for people to be saved then you don't understand the sovereign plan of God. In, in a universe where God is sovereign, chance does not exist. Happenstance and chance are mutually exclusive principles in a place, in a world, in a universe where God is sovereign. And so if you are a Christian today, if you are one of God's redeemed people, then you need to rejoice because before you were ever created, God had you in mind. The scripture says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God created the world and before you were born, Jesus came to die because he wanted you to be his child. None of that's accidental. It was designed. It was purposed. It was the divine plan and it was carried out. Jesus said, I must do this because this is the father's business. Now, interestingly... Peter, the one in this passage who protested the death of Christ, was actually the first of the disciples to preach that Jesus followed a predetermined plan. A later time, when his understanding was greater than what it is in this passage, he preached on the day of Pentecost, and he said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And then he went on to explain in that sermon how that David predicted the death of Christ, 
How that David prophesied hundreds of years before that Christ would die. And that he not only spoke of his death, but he spoke of his resurrection. He said that he will not remain in the tomb. He said he will not suffer the decay of his flesh, but he will be raised from the dead. And this is what Jesus said. I must suffer many things and be killed and then be raised from the dead. Peter also preached the predetermined plan of God in his first epistle. And this is just a wonderful place of scripture where he shows how that we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And of course there he's talking about what happened at the cross. And so he writes, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily, listen, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. So Christ was foreordained to do this. And there are many other places in Scripture that we could go to show that Jesus must go to Jerusalem to die because that was the plan from eternity past. He said that he would redeem those who would be given to him by the Father. And so Peter learned this lesson and he realized the foolishness of speaking out of his own wisdom when he said to Jesus, this shall not be done to you. You will not go to the cross. Forbid it that you should go. And so he saw the folly of speaking in man's wisdom rather than God's wisdom because Jesus must go to the cross for us. And that's really a truth that I hope that every one of you gets down deep into your soul that the cross of Jesus Christ is important. Now, he was at Caesarea Philippi and as we studied this previous passage that Jesus was as far north in Israel that you could go He was as far north from Jerusalem that you could go without being out of Israel. And there were lots of roads that Jesus could have taken to get out of that place. There were many ways that he could go. He didn't have to necessarily, it would seem, go to Jerusalem. He could bypass Jerusalem. There were lots of directions and there was no one waiting to kill him in the other places. And so he could have passed his days and lived out his life quietly and peaceably. But the father's business and the father's plan was not for him to take any other road. He must go to Jerusalem because he is God. He is the person of the Trinity that devised the plan. He's part of that Trinity uh, that, that made the plan. And he's the one who implements the plan. So he must go to Jerusalem or he can't be God. And so remember that in order to prove himself that he's God, he has to do everything that's been planned to do. He must do everything that the prophets prophesied about him. So Jesus couldn't deviate from that plan and neither did he want to. Man's wisdom says avoid the cross. Stay away from that. Get as far away from the cross as you possibly can. Don't die on a cross because man's wisdom says there's some other way this can be done. But man never sat in the council halls of eternity. Listen to this exchange between God and Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? 
Gird up thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where was thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. So God said to Job, where were you when the world was created? Where were you when I made all things that were made? Job, did you sit down with me, and did you give me counsel about what I should do? And so do you see that? This is the wisdom of God. The cross is God's wisdom. Man says it's foolish. People stumble at the cross. They can't get over it. Because God's wisdom says there is no other way. His wisdom says, Jesus, you must go to the cross. And that is totally against our thinking. So we do find that there are people that admire the life of Jesus. And they admire the compassion of him. They don't understand why Jesus really had to die. And they might mention the cross, and perhaps they would speak a little bit about his suffering. But what they don't want to talk about is the next part. Why was the cross necessary? Now, we can say that it was predetermined. We can say that he must go to Jerusalem. We can say it's in the plan of God. But that doesn't tell us why it's a part of God's plan. And this is the part people don't like to talk about. They're unwilling to think about this. Why is the cross absolutely necessary? And the answer to that question is because of the exacting justice of God. The cross is necessary because of God's justice. Now the part that people want to ignore about the cross is the real reason that Jesus was there. Now again, the apostle Peter got straightened down on some things. Uh, We're not going to look at Peter's thought patterns in verse number 22 this week. We're going to talk about it next week. But I can tell you what Peter thought about afterwards. He very clearly stated the purpose of Jesus going to the cross. And he says it in 1 Peter 2, verse number 24. He said, Who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. And that is the part that people hate to hear about, that it was our sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. Jesus was there to satisfy God for our sins. And the reason that people don't want to talk about that is because they don't like to admit that they're sinners. And so you'll not hear the media that so agreeably talks about being like Jesus and having a friend in Jesus and acting nice like Jesus acts, they're not going to say anything about that Jesus went to the cross because of the crimes that we have committed against God. They're not going to tell you that we're sinners, we're vile, we're wicked, and the reason that Jesus went to the cross is because of those crimes that we committed against God. Now here's a place where you might begin to wonder... Well, why couldn't God just speak from heaven and say, you're forgiven? Why couldn't we just meander up to God in our prayers and freely admit, yes, we are sinners against you. We have done the wrong thing. I confess that I'm a sinner, God. Now, just please forgive me. And God would say, okay, that's all right. I will forgive you. No harm, no foul. But then we'd have to ask What about the blood? Why is there blood? Why is there gore? Why is there the mess? Why is there the cruelty of the cross? Why must Jesus go to Jerusalem? And the answer to it is, a protest has to be raised. God, what about your holiness? And God, what about your perfection? And what about your justice? What are you going to do to preserve those? 
So how can God be holy and how can he permit sin to go unpunished at the same time? He can't be just and dismiss sin as if it never happened. How can he be merciful and how can he be gracious if sin is allowed to go unpunished? Have you ever thought about that? How could we preach the mercy and the grace of God if there actually is no offense? What if there is no punishment, if there is no consequence to sin? And what are we going to do about God violating the very attributes of his existence? You see how contradictory it is and how foolish it is for any church or any preacher to say, we will not preach about hell and we will not preach punishment. We will not talk about sin. The only thing that we want to talk about here is love and peace and harmony. And so we'll preach the grace of God and we'll preach the mercy of God, but we're not going to preach the wrath of God. You can't have love and you can't have grace and you can't have mercy unless you understand the sinfulness of man and God's wrath against it. And that's because love and grace and mercy have no frame of reference unless you bring in God's wrath. It has to be put up next to God's wrath. Do you understand that? You can't have those things without God's wrath. And so Christianity becomes meaningless without the cross. And if you admit that there was a cross and Jesus had to go to the cross, then you'd better find out what happened there. You need to know why there was a cross or else Jesus is nothing but a martyr who's mistakenly crucified. Now, we've already proved that it was the plan of God. It wasn't a mistake. And so why did he have to go to Jerusalem? Well, he had to go to be the sacrifice There must be a basis for the forgiveness of God. The penalty for sins must be paid. And it's not enough just to demand the death of a man because these crimes have been committed against the infinite God. Some weeks ago in our forum class, we discussed the idea of justification by death. That there are people who believe that the way to get to heaven is just to die. That entrance into heaven only requires death. And so you go to a funeral and you hear the eulogies that are made for people and there are those that have never confessed to have any belief in Jesus Christ, never confessed to know anything about him, never have turned their lives over to him. But people at funerals never say, I know this guy went to hell. He never confessed Christ, but he went to heaven. Do you know why they don't say that? Because people believe the only requirement that you need to get to heaven is to die. We can't be justified by what we do. Our sins must be punished and we can't even die and get to heaven. Sin has to be taken care of. So Jesus went to the cross to be punished for us. The scripture says the wages of sin is death. That sin always results in death. Sin's payoff is death. And so for you to be saved and for you to forever live in heaven, somebody had to die for you. Somebody who had the ability to satisfy God for your sins must die for you or else you must spend eternity in hell. So Jesus had to go to Jerusalem so that you must not go to hell. But we also think, why Jerusalem? Why couldn't he go to Galilee? Why not go to Capernaum? Why not go to Nazareth? Why not go to Bethlehem? Why not go to Jericho? Well, this is where we see the beautiful consistency of Scripture, the harmony of Scripture. 
because this is the setting forth of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I wish we had time to develop the thought completely. Jesus must go to Jerusalem because it is the place of sacrifice. This is where the temple was built. Jerusalem was the only place that God accepted sacrifice. See, the Jews were forbidden to make a sacrifice for atonement in any other place but Jerusalem. And that's why at the time of Jesus, there were Jews from all over the world that came to Jerusalem for Passover. This is why Joseph and Mary were in Jerusalem for Passover and Jesus was left behind. And that's where we saw those first words that he spoke when he was 12 years old. He said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? And that's because the family had traveled to Jerusalem because this is the time for the sacrifice to be made. Now, just to give you a little bit of important Bible trivia, the Jews have no right to to celebrate Passover today. Now, besides the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world and that he fulfilled that Passover type, there is no priesthood today. There is no temple today. They have no right to Passover even if they live in Jerusalem because the priesthood is gone and the temple is gone. Now, I'll tell you, you don't want to say that on TV. You don't want to go on national television and say that. If you don't want every bleeding heart false religion to jump down your throat, don't dare say something like that, but it's true. Jesus went to Jerusalem because the sacrifice is to be made there, and he was that final once-for-all sacrifice. Now, just think about this for a moment. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22? Last Sunday night, Brother Dalton mentioned this passage of Scripture. And it's one of the beautiful pictures that we have of how Christ died as a substitute for our sins. That Abraham was to sacrifice his son Isaac. And that's what you'll read about in that 22nd chapter. And Abraham was willing to do it because he believed in God. And he believed that if he did this, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Isaac was the son of promise. And God had already told Abraham that he was going to make him the father of many nations. And so if God was going to keep covenant with Abraham, then if he kills Isaac, then he must rise from the dead. So Abraham was willing to do it. So there was Abraham ready to slit Isaac's throat and to let him bleed out. And God spoke to him. And he said, don't do it, Abraham. I've tested your faith and I see that you're willing to give me everything. You're willing to give me your own son. And that part makes Abraham a type of God the Father. That God the Father was willing to give his most precious possession. He was willing to give Christ to die for us. And in that example, Isaac becomes a type of the Son of God. So he was willing, Abraham was willing to give his most precious possession and so was God. But we read on in that story, and we see that a sacrifice still had to be made. And so Abraham looked up, and he saw a ram that was caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took that ram, and he sacrificed it instead of Isaac. And in that picture, the ram becomes the type of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he was the one that was sacrificed in our place The ram substituted for Isaac, and Jesus substituted for us. He's the ram that died for us. Well, where I'm going with this is, do you know where it all took place? It happened on Mount Moriah. And that is the place that hundreds of years later became the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. 
You see, the Bible is consistent with its types and its figures that Jesus would return to the place of the offering of Isaac to be the ram that was caught in the thicket for us. And let me relate another story to you. This is from 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And there in that chapter, we read where David had committed a terrible sin against God by numbering the children of Israel. Now, that was a sin because what David wanted to do was to find out the strength of his army, which meant that he was depending on his army more than he was depending upon God. So God punished David for that, and God gave David a choice of punishments. And David said, well, I don't want to fall into the hands of my enemies, so let me fall into the hand of God. God is righteous, and I trust that God will do what is right. So God sent an angel and killed 70,000 people in Israel. And just as that angel was getting ready to destroy Jerusalem, David cried out to God and he confessed and he said, I'm the one who's at fault. I'm the one who did this. And so save the people and instead destroy me and destroy my family. But God couldn't do that. Do you know why? Because David was in the line of Jesus Christ and his family was in the line of Christ. He couldn't destroy David. So God said, I'm going to do something else. He said, I want you to make a sacrifice. And so he said, I'm going to tell you where to make your sacrifice. And he said, you need to go and see Ornan, the Jebusite. And you make your sacrifice on the threshing floor of Ornan. And so David went to Ornan to buy his threshing floor. And Ornan said, well, you don't have to buy it. I'll give it to you. And I'll give you the oxen for the sacrifice. And I'll give you the wood to burn the sacrifice. And I'll throw in a meal offering, some wheat, so you can make an offering to God of meal. And David said, no. He said, I'll buy it from you because I will not sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing. Now, there's a lot of preaching in that statement, and I, and I wish I could go on there, and I'm tempted to, but that's not my point today. My point is, do you know where it all took place? Well, it happened at the place that later became the Temple Mount, and that sacrifice that David made was there. You see, the Jebusites were the original inhabitants of Jerusalem, so God said, go to Ornan, the Jebusite, and buy his threshing floor. So there we find that Jesus fulfilled that type. The Old Testament, everything that we read in the Old Testament points to this place. Thousands of sacrifices were made at the temple and Jesus, the Passover lamb, went to Jerusalem to be crucified for our sins. So sin is the culprit in the death of Jesus. Sin is the transgression of God's law and there has to be a penalty paid for it. See, God is always holy and just, and so he never forgives without satisfaction to the divine law. And so we have sinned against God, and whether you want to admit it or not, our sins placed Jesus on the cross. It was our sins that caused that bloody death, that cruel death. And when Jesus went to the cross, he suffered the penalty that we would have to pay, and so his suffering was the suffering of hell for us. Now, I've, I've run out of time for this message, and, and I want to come back next week to talk about what Jesus said to Peter when Peter said, Lord, don't do this. Lord, be merciful to yourself. Lord, you don't have to die. Yes, he did have to die. The sovereign almighty God said that he must die in order that we might live. So let me finish today with just a brief final point, 
and that is the everlasting gospel of salvation. And I want you to see that there is actually a gospel presentation in verse number 20. Jesus must suffer, he must die, and then this all-important point, he will be raised on the third day. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians that that is actually the golden nugget of gospel truth. He said, let me tell you what the gospel is. The gospel is that Jesus died, and that he was buried, and that he arose from the dead. Now, I think that when Peter heard Jesus say that he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, that the next part just kind of flew over his head. He must not have heard that part because it didn't really, it didn't really register with him that Jesus would rise from the dead. But that's really the good news of the gospel, that not only was Jesus killed, not only was he buried, but the third day he did arise from the dead. And we sing that song, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living because he lives. And that's why Jesus can be your savior. He lives. Today he's alive. And the good news of the gospel is that if you will put your faith and your trust in him, if you will repent of your sins and believe that he had to go to Jerusalem for you, if you believe he must go to the cross for you to pay to the penalty of your sins, of your crimes against God, then he says you can be forgiven. This is what all must do. We must admit that we are sinners and trust Jesus to save us. And then when we do, God says, welcome to my family. You see, this is the very best decision that any person can make. And that's because it is the wisdom of God. Man's wisdom says no to the cross, but God says it must be done. If you are to be saved, Jesus must go to the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we think about this wonderful message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that in your love, your mercy, and your grace that you came down from heaven, that you gave up that glorious place where angels bowed at your feet and where praises were sung without end. And yet you forsook all of that to come to this world, to take on the form of a servant, and then to come to die the lowly death of the cross, to be buried in a tomb. Lord, we thank you that you were willing to do that for us. No reason that you should other than your own mercy, love, and grace that you would. So, Father, we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you'd open some eyes to that blessed truth today. Someone may see that the only way that they can be saved is to trust you as Savior, admit they are sinners, turn everything over to you, repent of those sins, and trust you as Savior. Speak to us in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.